Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. Each episode, we'll discuss one classic book and share some recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. Before we start Short Story Club, let's have Audiobook Club. Okay. <laughs> what are you listening <laughs> Our to Our favorite right now? club. Yeah. <laughs> I am listening to Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. It's been on my to-read list all year. It was one of my most anticipated releases of 2020. We both love The Warmth of Other Suns. And yeah, I finally started listening to it. It is fantastic. I love consuming it kind of like bite by bite um, on walks and such. And yeah, I'm loving it. How about you? What are you listening to? I just finished listening to How to Fail at Flirting, which was a romance, which it was a romance, but it was also, there were some really intense parts. And so Hmm. if that's a book that people are interested in reading and they want to hear more about it, they can send me a message. But uh, there were some unexpected moments that I was like, this is a darker book than my typical like rom-com kind of pick but the narrator was really good it was a good audiobook listen so since I finished that I have my queue up and I am like halfway through the dead are arising Hmm. and I have wintering queued up as well and I'm really excited to listen to that one I've heard that that's great on audio. I'm even thinking that at some point I might revisit that one on audio because it's just one that will take a couple of reads to fully process, I think. Yeah, I'm excited about that. So when we're talking about our audiobook queue, what we're talking about is Libro FM because of they're, <laughs> they're our favorite, they're the best, and they have a really great app. I really love using the app. And so literally when we talk about opening our cube, we're opening our Libro FM app. And we share Libro with you because we want to spread the audiobook love, but also because they support independent bookstores. And that's one of our favorite things about them is that they support our local indies. And 2020 was a tough year for independent bookstores. So keeping up A Libro subscription is a great way to make sure that you're continuing to support those independent bookstores, whether they're your local ones or ones you hope to visit one day when travel is an option. So listeners of the Novel Pairings podcast can get two audiobook credits for the price of one with Libro FM. You can go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M and enter the promo code Novel Pairings. We also put that link in our show notes, so go there to start your audiobook listening today. All right, Sarah, let's get into Short Story Club now. Meeting of Audiobook Club adjourned. (laughs) (laughs) Until next week. Yes. (laughs) So we read The Hunter's Wife by Anthony Doerr. And people might recognize him as the author of All the Light We Cannot See, which was a really popular World War II historical fiction novel. And he has also written, I want to say it's like Four Seasons in Rome. He wrote some sort of travel memoir. I haven't read that or All the Light We Cannot See. But those are the works that he's most known for. And I haven't seen anything new from him since. Yeah, I was just thinking that as well. I haven't either. And... He might be one of those authors that puts out like one critically acclaimed book every five (laughs) (laughs) years or something, because All the Light We Cannot See won the Pulitzer. It was a very well-regarded book. I did read it. I liked it. I didn't love it. I did think the writing was incredible, but maybe it was World War II book burnout or a case of it being overhyped. I I hate, I kind of hate the phrase overhyped because- it's hyped as much as people who loved it wanted to hype <laughs> yeah, it. Exactly. And then <laughs> so it's not overhyped to them. It's just I had maybe different expectations going in. Anyways, I think he's a fantastic writer. And so I was excited to explore more of his work. You picked this story, The Hunter's Wife. 
I do did. want to tell listeners why you wanted to do this for our winter short story club? Yes. So first of all, it's the most wintry of winter short stories ever. And it's also something more recent, but as we will talk about when we talk about the language and even some things about the plot and just the imagery, it feels like a classic. I also chose this as one of our texts for my lit survey class, and I have been teaching online and Needless to say, they did not buy, I mean, maybe they did, but I don't have evidence that they read the story. <laughs> and I really wanted to talk about it with someone because I think it's just a really interesting story. And so when we said short story club, I was like, I have one for us. I want to read this one and rope you into my lit survey class. Yeah, I'm excited to be part of your seminar here today and get to discuss this with you. It's very discussable. I can I think this was a great pick for for a class. Yeah, so let's do it. Well, first let's give a little summary and then let's start digging in. Do you want to give the summary? I feel like you are more of the expert in this. <laughs> sure. I don't know. I I feel like um Maybe you can help me remember some details here, but because it is a longer short story. So it's almost, I mean, it's not novella length, but it is a longer short story. So it's called The Hunter's Wife, and it is about a hunter who is referred to as the hunter the entire story. And he even says, he mentions somewhere that he is a hunting guide, and yet he's always Mm -hmm. referred to as the hunter. So we'll talk about some naming things later on. And it is about the hunter and his wife, who does get a name, but her name is not brought up very often throughout the story. Mm -hmm. She's just kind of referred to as his wife throughout. So the story opens and he is visiting Chicago and it's his first time ever leaving his home in Montana to be in the big city. And he is there to see her perform magic at a university thing, like a soiree. He hasn't seen her in 20 years. So then the story in the middle goes back over the course of how they met and their relationship and what happened to sort of cause her to leave and have this 20-year gap where they haven't seen each other. And then in a very satisfying way, the story ends with them being in the same room again and having that sort of closure. So that is the broad overview, but in between there, there's all of this nature imagery, survival, magic, interrelationship stuff. And it's, it's fascinating to me. I would read this as a book. I would read this if it were a novel. Yeah, it would be a great novel. I think so too. Although there are some things that I would change and we'll talk about that as well. (laughs) It's, I like it, but I won't say it's like my favorite story because there are some kind of bleh things about it, but I really admire the writing. Oh yeah. And this is one of those, I think I really, really appreciate it. And I like, this is a very well-written short story. It's a good short story, just solidly. There, I guess I'll get into my first Yeah, go for it. I'm curious to hear what your general thoughts are and your reactions to it and what you thought. Yeah, I, I ended up liking the story, but it took me until probably the last three or four pages. I think, I think it's like, I don't know, 16, 20-ish pages. It took me till the last three or four of the pages to be like, oh, I see what we're doing here. And I like it now. And I think part of it is reading this in a 2020 context. And there are some things that, so the the version you and I read, I'm not sure if this is the first time this story was published, but the version we read was published in the May 2001 issue of The Atlantic. So it's not that old. I mean, and so it's not, some of the things in here I think are a little bit questionable for even a 2001 sensibility. Mm-hmm. But reading from the 2020 context when this story started out, it really felt like all of the 
New York Times <laughs> op-eds that I've read in the last, been bombarded with in the last four years about white rural men and what their <laughs> lives are like and what they think and want. And I just was like, gosh, I don't care anymore. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what this ended up being, but it definitely felt like that at the beginning. And I mean, there might be some of that in here too, but that's not really what the story was about. This wasn't a story about trying to understand white rural America at all, but I was a little bit worried that that's what it was going to be at the start. <laughs> I can understand that, especially because the opening is all about this beautiful description of Montana. And then he flies into Chicago and he is the fish out of water when he's there. But Mm -hmm. can we just talk about how beautiful the writing is? If we're going to start at the beginning of the story and sort of just go through it like beat by beat, I think we have to talk about how exquisite the descriptions are because it's just beautiful language. It's so pretty. It really is. It's so pretty. Yeah, I I was so struck by the contrast between the first two paragraphs because in the first paragraph, Dor describes Montana from the like window of the plane. And then in the second paragraph, he describes Chicago from the window of the plane. And they're so drastically different, but they're both really beautifully written. Okay, you read Montana, and then I'll read Chicago. Okay. That way we can have an example. <laughs> All right. It was the hunter's first time outside Montana. He woke, stricken still with the hours-old vision of ascending through rose-lit cumulus, of houses and barns like specks deep in the Snowden valleys, all the scrolling country below, looking December, brown and black hills streaked with snow, flashes of iced-over lakes, the long braids of a river gleaming at the bottom of a canyon. Above the wing, the sky had deepened to a blue so pure, he knew it would bring tears to his eyes if he looked long enough. Now it was dark. The airplane descended over Chicago, its galaxy of electric lights, the vast neighborhoods coming clearer as the plane glided toward the airport. Streetlights, headlights, stacks of buildings, ice rinks, a truck turning at a stoplight, scraps of snow atop a warehouse, and winking antenna on faraway hills. Finally, the long converging parallels of blue runway lights, and they were down. It's just such good writing. I mean, even in just reading it aloud, I noticed this. The country below looking December. Mm -hmm. Like, just using December as an adjective there. Just... So inventive in his way with words is really marvelous. Yeah, and that really continues throughout this whole story, which is probably a big part of why it kept me so engaged, even at the moments where I was like, eh, really? Yeah. <laughs> the writing was so pretty that I I wanted to keep reading. And yeah. we, we get so much set up in this first page. You get he's coming to see his wife, who he hasn't seen in 20 years, And she's going to perform magic. And you're like, what? And how did these two end up together if she's at a Chicago University performing magic and he had never, he was a hunter who had never left Montana? Yeah. And and how could they have gone for 20 years without seeing each other? Just there are so many questions at the start. And I, yeah, it really propels you through because you want those answers, but it doesn't feel manipulative. It doesn't feel like Dor is withholding information from you just for the sake of making you read. Yeah. It's very naturally done. All right. Let's get into the part that, I mean, I just know that this is going to be the part where we're like, "Mm, we don't like this. Just because I know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He meets this young woman. He's 30. And he's twice her age. She's 15. And this is this is the back now. Yeah. This is where the flashback at, how he met yeah. his wife. And she's a magician's assistant. And he ends up sort of happening upon the show. And he watches her on stage and is really captured by her and takes her out to a diner and starts to get to know her. And over the years, her sort of troop or 
show visits his area again. And then when she's 18, he takes her out to the diner and then takes her home and marries her. And I, I mean, that's gross. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's icky. just gross. Yeah. It, yeah. That part bothered me a lot. And I, I think that I try to be a pretty generous reader and one English major hack <laughs> is if something in a piece of writing really bothers me and I, I can't shake it, I try to ask, okay, well, why would the author do that? Why would they include this detail? What are they trying to say with it? And I just really couldn't figure it out with this one. I mean, I, I understand the age difference. I think it's mm-hmm. really important that she is younger than him. She's not jaded. She believes in magic, literally. She's, I don't know, innocent is the wrong word, but um, I know she's more curious about the world still. All of that's important. But she could have been significantly younger than him and not 15, half his age, a minor. I It just, yeah, that I couldn't quite get over that. Yeah, and it it would also be one thing if the story reflected that in a way that you get that the author's disagreeing with it or saying like, oh, well, we know that this is a not great way to, it's it's grooming. Mm-hmm. And of course, it doesn't get called out for that. But it's it's gross. But fortunately, it's only the course of two pages. And then you move along. Yeah, and I will also say it's gross. And I was like, has Anthony Doerr met a 15-year-old girl? Yeah. <laughs> I was reading because it just <laughs> because it was like a 30-year-old having a conversation with a 28-year-old. Yeah. He takes her out the first time and he's kind of like saying, Oh, I know how you do all of your magic tricks. Um, you do this and this, and like that, that's how you fool people. And she says, is that what you do? Follow a girl from town to town to tell her magic isn't real. Like, I just cannot imagine a 15-year-old snapping back with that to a 30-year-old man. And honestly, the the dialogue there and their sort of, you know, meet cute, so to speak, is also just a little bit eye-rolly because it kind of feels like every indie film that a guy has ever written where the characters are just super witty automatically and she's mysterious and so of course he's just completely head over heels for her automatically and it's there's a lot of about this that I'm like okay I am definitely reading a male author (laughs) yeah she's very much at least in the first part of the story and we can talk about whether we think this changes or not but she's very much the manic pixie dream girl he's hardened and (laughs) rough and serious and she is a little bit more whimsical and flighty and witty and there's a definite male gaze and Mm -hmm. male lens yeah and of course you uh, these are people who seem completely incompatible for each other but they're about to endure a harsh winter and the way that their relationship works is that she needs him for survival. Mm-hmm. But you get this hint early on that there's real magic here or that there's something special about her abilities. They go back to his cabin and he is, it's really cold and they're about to be snowed in. And he is like, Do you want to see something? And that sounds very dirty, but it's not a story. <laughs> like we said, this is fine for teenagers. <laughs> but he's like, I'm going to show you a, a bear. So they go to this bear den and he shows her this hibernating bear and he says, don't touch the bear. So, of course, what does she do? She touches the bear <laughs> and she has this unique experience where... She tells the hunter what the bear is dreaming about. She says that he's dreaming about summer, 
blackberries, trout, dredging his flanks across river pebbles. Mm. And the hunter really just thinks like, oh, she's just this dreamy, imaginative girl. And then we get a couple other scenes where this is really targeted specifically at animals, which is ironic since he's a hunter, but she's got this like really deep connection to animals. Mm-hmm. And she t- says often that she sees where they go when they die, yep. the animals. And yeah, it, it is, of course, really important that he is a hunter and she is, has this connection with animals. And I really love the way it's depicted in this story because for most of the story, you could just sort of believe like, oh, this is a really intuitive and empathetic woman She's really sensitive to the plights of all living creatures, and that's where this is coming from. But like you said, because it's so pervasive and because we have the hints of magic at the beginning or the mention of it, then we're kind of wondering the whole time. And that is a really cool experience as a reader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she also tells the hunter what he dreams So she'll say, you had three dreams last night. You dreamt you were a wolf and you were mad with hunger and you were running under the moon. And he is kind of like, huh, I didn't remember that, but I must have been talking in my sleep. Mm -hmm. So he just kind of brushes it off as though I was talking in my sleep. And that's how she knows that that was my dream. But then there's, so one of the passages that I have marked is, They are, so they're living life and she is having these encounters with the animals um, and saying, like, I see where they go when they die. And he says, winter is getting to you. And he's starting to write this off as cabin fever. It was something he'd long believed. Go out every day in winter or your mind will snip will slip. Every winter, the paper was full of stories about ranchers' wives snowed in, crazed with cabin fever, who had dispatched their husbands with cleavers or alls. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know I love a good story about hysteria, so that's when I was like, ooh. (laughs) And, okay, as someone who gets seasonal affective disorder, like, I do get the cabin fever thing. I think particularly Mm -hmm. this winter when we're all especially cooped up, having that really major effect on your mind is is a real thing. Uh, and then the next very next paragraph after he's sort of warning about winter is winter threw itself at the cabin. And I just love that transition and I love that phrase. So he does all of these things to sort of make sure that they're getting out, but eventually they are caught in this horrible survival story. It turns into a Jack London story, basically. Yeah, it's super intense. I mean, she is not doing well already, pre-winter. She is bored. Mm-hmm. She is, I mean, it, it, it sounds like kind of yellow wallpapery. Like, yeah. Um, and Yeah, by June, she was bored and lonely. She wandered through the forest, but never very far. And then he starts leading his hunting trips, and she began to sleep, taking long afternoon naps, three hours or more. Sleep, she learned, was a skill like any other, like getting sawed in half and reassembled, or like divining visions from a dead robin. She taught herself to sleep despite heat, despite noise. I thought that section was so vivid and how he takes something like you and I both love a good nap. (laughs) He takes something that is supposed to be restorative and he, he shows it as something that is signaling her decay and decline. But I also just like those little lines in there about how magic is a skill like any other two, whether it's her role as the magician's assistant or or being able to divine visions from dead animals. And just those little snippets in there that make you wonder, oh, is this magic real? Mm-hmm. So, so artfully done. You really still see the contrast between them where we have this hunter 
who's used to harsh winters and being he's used to being alone. He's happy because he has a companion. She is depressed because he's her only companion. Right. And it seems that he, you know, views might view some of this as weakness on her part or he just sees that she is slowly sinking and not doing well. And there's never a moment where he's like, well, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We don't ever have that. He just steadily takes care of her. But we do see this contrast in this life doesn't seem meant for her, despite her connection with all of these animals. Late in the story, it's pretty obvious why. Yeah. We'll talk about how it seems like, okay, well, obviously she needs humans. Um, yes. But but first we get these scenes of the winter just absolutely obliterating their cabin, their food supply, them. They're basically just starving in this cabin by themselves. And it's, I, I was tense reading this. We mm-hmm. It went from this very dreamy, descriptive, beautiful story. And then I was on the edge of my seat during these mm-hmm. scenes, even though I didn't really think that anything was going to happen to them. Because right. obviously, because they're, you know, you know yeah. they're 20 years later. But it was so tense, especially because of how descriptive he is. Snow fell incessantly. Night was abiding. Daylight passed in a breath. The hunter was beyond hungry. Whenever he stood up, his eyesight fled in slow, nauseating streaks of color. I just, that's terrifying. I don't think I love survival stories as much as you do, but I was still really invested in the descriptions here and in how he depicts the the loneliness but but also like the physical aches of hunger and then i of course i mean i love that it's not only that they get to town and get food that saves them but that it's also books that save yes. her yes i love that, that. She gets a library card and she takes 20 books home with her on her first visit. And that is what brings her back to life. Yeah, it's sustenance for her. It's her civilization she's getting from books. And yeah, it's beautiful. And it seems like, okay, things are going to get better. And then she just wants more and more and more books. Mm-hmm. And she's got and think, this deeper hunger for knowledge about other places. Yes, and other people. And I think what you said that he is her only companion and that is part of what is kind of leading to her slow deterioration. And now she's gaining companionship of other people through their words and ideas in books. And then she moves beyond that when a man named Marlin, Marlin Spokes, is driving a snowplow and it goes off the edge of a bridge and into the river. And he dies. She is close by. She's at the library. She sees this happening. She runs over and as she's helping pull him out, she touches him and she sees his son mm-hmm. his son riding a bicycle and not but not only does she see his son she feels the same love that marlon has for his own child and all of the people who are touching her or marlon in that moment see and feel that too and that is when we know this is this is real magic this is where we're going in the story this woman has a special gift. And that's her magic. Mm-hmm. And it's so beautiful. And also, there's something very feminine about that to me. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think that many girls are socialized to be more empathetic. But... Certainly, I, the way that this ability is described, it there's just there's a femininity to it that I think is really interesting. 
this is a very in in many ways feminine magic and and this is the gift that changes her life people seek her out they want her help they want her to help them commune with their loved ones who have passed on and she starts traveling she starts seeking out people or or helping people who are seeking her out and after you know 5 years of marriage and her thinking about not coming back every time she leaves the hunter she just keeps driving one day and she doesn't come back and that that's the last time we don't even get the like goodbye we don't even get what the last thing that pushed her over the edge was it's just she the more she left the more she realized she didn't want to go back and one day mm-hmm. she just she just doesn't and he never believes her he never believes her that's really important yeah he he thinks that she's tricking people and deceiving them that yeah, he says you're he, a con uh-huh and people are paying her and she she doesn't seem to ask for payment at least early but people really they're so moved by what she does. They insist on paying her. And he thinks that that's disgusting. And yeah, he never believes in her. Yeah. And I, that beyond her, I think, wanting to see the outside world, that is why she leaves him specifically. Yes. Yes. And she invites him. She says, come with me. I'll show you. Like, you can come into the room with me and and be there. And he refuses to. And then in this moment, 20 years later, he's standing there. She. This is, this is why she has been brought to this university. The president of the university's, I believe, wife and children have died in a horrible accident. And she is there to help him commune with them. And the hunter is standing there. He sees his wife reach into the casket. And then he just feels both people on either side of him grab his hands. And, you know, he doesn't have a chance to think about it. And then all of a sudden, he is seeing this family on the beach in this moment of like pure togetherness and joy. And he he sees he he gets it i was just looking at it because it's just fascinating so basically they sort of come back together they're standing together he doesn't want to speak because it feels like it would just like ruin the moment and the last sentence is so instead they stood together the snow fluttering from the clouds to melt into the water where their reflected images trembled like two people trapped against the glass of a parallel world and he reached finally to take her hand it's such a good last line and i really don't know how i interpret it (laughs) and i'm okay with that i like an ambiguous ending i i mean i think that it's just symbolic of him finally seeing what she sees so when they're sort of trapped in the glass of a parallel world he now is in that with her where he can Mm. see what's on the other side of the parallel world and finally taking her hand we know that physically when you touch her when you hold her hand you can see what she's seeing and Mm -hmm. so it just seems like symbolic of him coming around to the belief and believing Mm. her oh i like that i i think i read it as the parallel world was the world where they could have been together oh maybe instead but i i mean again like i love (laughs) i love Mm -hmm. an ending that offers various interpretations and this one surely does yeah and i just i love that the contrasting images here he says that speaking would be like dashing something fragile to pieces like kicking a dandelion and Mm. scattering and then snow is coming down so you get this image of the dandelion scattering and then you get the pretty snow falling and it's a very similar image but one is spring and summer and one is winter. And I just love the 
I don't know, the seasonal contrast there is beautiful as well and makes sense because they're caught between there's throughout the story, all of the parallels are winter and death and (laughs) spring and summer and life, which is like the literary theme of everything, right? Yeah. (laughs) This is, and that, I mean, that's why I picked this for an English 101 class. Right. Um, But that contrast. But he also does a really lovely job of blurring those things. This would be a really good story to do with a deconstructionist theoretical lens, which maybe we'll talk about one day very far in the future on Patreon (laughs) or somewhere. Um, But that is a kind of theory where you look at the way binaries, things that you think are opposite, actually overlap and have these parallels and similarities. And this story is like all about that death and life and winter and summer and youth and age and all of that. Yeah, it's it's full. It's ripe for literary theory. And it certainly is. <laughs> um, deconstruction is something we touched on just a teeny little bit in our My Antonia conversation. I think that this story pairs really well with that book. It pairs well with the season imagery. It pairs well with the scenes of winter and the survival stories and just the general tone and the Western Montana sort of setting. So I think it makes for a really good pairing with that. I thought that it kind of reminded me a little bit of love medicine where you get this ethereal feeling, but also just this really grounded humanity. And so it it just feels like a classic to me. I agree. It pairs so well with my Antonia. And I decided not to repeat the pairing, but it does pair really well with Wintering by Catherine May, which we talked about in our Libro spot as well. The line, there was, she was learning, strength hidden at the center of weakness, ground at the bottom of the deepest pit. It's like, could be the thesis of wintering Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and is a lovely line from this story. So those were some bonus pairings. Yes. Should we talk about our quote unquote official pairings for this story? Yeah, I think we should. I'm excited to hear what you have in store. What's your first pairing? My first one is Devotions by Mary Oliver, or really any Mary Oliver poetry. (laughs) Mary Oliver is perfectly matched with this. Yes, she is. I mean, she, so if you aren't familiar with Mary Oliver's poetry, it's really all about nature. It's nature poetry. And she really sees, saw herself, she passed away not long, not too long ago, as an observer of the mundane and the natural world. And she has this real gift for giving life and richness to the smallest moments and the smallest creatures. She just has so many good poems about various insects or birds or just the way the grass looks. And, and she, it, I mean, it sounds flowery <laughs> and but it's not her her language while she is describing the natural world is very accessible and grounded i would say is a good way to describe her language mm-hmm. even if you aren't a huge poetry fan i think mary oliver is a great place to start and she has so many lines that you just want to like pin on your mirror to remind yourself and inspire you every day. She's fantastic. And of course, we didn't mention this, but but the hunter's wife in the short story, she also writes nature poetry. So I, I imagine it as being similar to Mary Oliver's poetry. So Devotions is a compilation of her most well-regarded poems. So that's why I picked that one. But you really can't go wrong with any Mary Oliver collection. I love that. I Okay, so I did go back to repeat a pairing for my Antonia. Totally allowed. Because I had to. It's so perfect. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And this is one of my favorite, just one of my personal favorite books, especially for wintertime. It's A Woman in the Polar Night by Christiane Ritter. And if you are doing a reading challenge this year and you want to kick it off with a book in translation, this is a book in translation. It's a translated work. And Christiane Ritter is 
I think she's Austrian. I believe that this work was translated from German. And she goes to live with her husband, an Arctic explorer, in a cabin for a winter. It is too perfect. I had to pair it again. (laughs) And it is filled with beautiful winter imagery. And there are some harrowing experiences. But she's an artist. And so she's writing this memoir and sort of collecting these journals of hers as a way of finding the beauty in the everyday situations that she's encountering in this beautiful and stunning and dangerous place. And I think that if you enjoyed reading The Hunter's Wife, which it could be argued, although there are some harrowing moments, it's kind of a quiet story. Yeah, A Woman in the Polar Night is quiet. It's not a propulsive page turner, but it's just a really beautiful sort of glide along and tromp in the snow with her and listen to her descriptions. And I couldn't help but recommend it here because it's just too perfect. It's, it sounds absolutely perfect. And I've heard you talk about this one on He Read, She Read as well. And I I know it's one of your favorites and that now that it's been reissued, you feel like you can share it more because <laughs> before it was harder to track down. So I love that you're getting the chance to share your love for this one. I think maybe I'll be rereading it this winter. I think since, especially since I've been talking about it so much and bringing it up again, I think I have to. Okay. I think you would like my next pairing, which is, this is The Bear by Andrew Krybeck. This was a 2020 release and it is totally under the radar. I haven't seen or heard anyone talk about it, but I really liked it. So this book, it it reads like a fable. It's not like you have to be willing to lose yourself in that fairy tale feel because it's not realistic fiction at all. It is about a girl and her father and they live on this mountain and it's it kind of feels like paradise in a way, but also they're the last two people on earth. And so there's this sense that something horrible has happened or, you know, there's just a, in addition to it being kind of idyllic, there's an added element of mystery and maybe um, something a little bit more sinister. And the girl knows she had a mother and she has a few remnants of things that belong to her mother, like a hairbrush, but she really doesn't know anything about her mother. And the father says that he'll tell her one day, but right now he needs, the things he needs to tell her are more practical, like how to fish and how to survive and how to navigate by the stars so that she can make sure that she's safe on the mountain. And then one day she finds herself lost and alone and a bear comes to lead her home. And so there's this mystical fable-like feeling. I just, I mean, it pairs so perfectly. Like this might be kind of the novelization of the story that you said you wanted, Chelsea. Yeah. And um, the, the nature imagery is absolutely lovely. The cover is gorgeous. It has like constellations on it. Ooh. It's just, it's such a pretty book inside and out. And you know, it's quieter. I'm not surprised it didn't make a huge splash this year, but I think actually there are a lot of readers who would enjoy this if you like books that are not necessarily retellings of fairy tales, but are modern works that feel like fairy tales and fables. This is definitely one of those. So that is The Bear by Andrew Krivik. That does sound really good. I went with something. So A Woman in the Polar Night is very, it's a memoir. It's a true story, but it's very beautiful. The language really matches The Hunter's Wife. This next recommendation that I have is very much firmly in survival territory. And I have not read it. My husband has read it and he loved this book. He read it in a day. I just have it pulled up on Goodreads because I was curious and I wanted the description and it has a 4.39 rating on Goodreads. A lot of people love this book. Uh, It's Endurance, Shackleton's Incredible Voyage by Alfred Lansing. And this is like the book about Ernest Shackleton if you are interested in survival stories and exploration. Maybe we'll tackle a Jack London story or one of his books on the podcast someday, and I'll kick myself for not saving this pairing, but there are so many survival (laughs) books that 
there's there's plenty to pick from. So <laughs> I just thought I would recommend this one because it's just a really good book to read in the wintertime. And if people are looking for those right now, this is a page turner, but it's nonfiction. In 1914, Ernest Shackleton, an explorer, and his group of 27 men, they get on board a ship and they get stuck on ice. And then they have to survive. And what's notable about him is not just their, it's not just their grit. He has amazing leadership skills. Hmm. And arguably leadership is what really rescues a lot of these men. And so it's, it's harrowing. Uh, I think that there are some tough scenes involving dogs. So heads up, sensitive readers. Um, but this is one of Curtis's favorite nonfiction books. So I just thought that I would go ahead and it's just a good contrast to a woman in the polar night. Just, we've got a really quiet, beautiful, true story. And then we've got the really intense survival story. Oh, I love that. All right. My final pairing is something totally different, but I (laughs) wanted to give something a little bit cozier maybe than I normally recommend. (laughs) So this is The Birch Bark House by Louise Erdrich. And I completely agree, Chelsea, when you said that this reminded you a bit of when you said that The Hunter's Wife reminded you a bit of Love Medicine. I completely agreed. I thought about braiding sweetgrass being a great pairing for this. But I thought this one would be fun because it's Erdrich's series, The Birch Bark House is the first one, for middle grade readers. And basic, this book is described as the indigenous perspective of Little House on the Prairie. And I, I, that's certainly, I think, what Erdrich is going for. But it's so much more than that. The book follows seven-year-old Omakaius or Little Frog, as she is known. And she is an Ojibwe girl living with an adoptive tribe, actually. She's found as a as a young as a young kid. And it just I love her. I love Omakaius's connection with the natural world that she has in this. She has a pet, I forget what kind of bird, but she has this like pet bird that she really does commune with in a really mystical way. Um, and so, and it it's seasonal, much like Little House, where you see them um, planting and harvesting and hunting and gathering and just the way you have to be in tune with the seasons if you're going to live in the natural world like that is depicted really, really well in this book. I've seen some negative reviews because I think this book isn't as cozy as Little House. Like there are harder or the harder things are written maybe more bluntly, which is very typical of Louise Erdrich, but it's just a different style and a different different time period that the book is being written in. And so I actually like that element of these books. So um, great one to pick up if you're looking for a middle grade series to read for yourself or for your kids. This is the first one is The Birch Bark House by Louise Erdrich. My last pairing, I I still have a question mark by it in the outline because <laughs> it's been a it's been a really long time since I've read The Night Circus by Erin Morgenstern, but I kept thinking about it while I was reading The Hunter's Wife. Like it just was some connection, some synapse in my brain was going off. And so I I don't remember exactly why, aside from the magic and just the feeling of the book seems to match The Hunter's Wife to me. And like Mm -hmm. I said, it's been a long time since I've read it, but it's more of gut feeling the tones of this story and the book, The Night Circus, seem similar. And the sort of weaving of magic in in a very realistic way and feeling historical and feeling kind of like a classic, just... They just have a similar vibe. And that's as that's as good as I can get. <laughs> I reread this one earlier this year and I concur. So. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. So Very- trust Sarah. 
<laughs> just just lovely magic, I yeah. think, is is part of the vibe. Just I mean, the magic in the night circus is less subtle, but the way it is kind of about intuition and mm-hmm. feeling and relationship and emotions, like is very similar to the hunter's wife. Somewhere my brain knew that, but I, yeah, couldn't, totally. I couldn't put it into words. So I'm really glad that you could. It um, It's such a good one. All right. Well, that has been Short Story Club. We hope that you enjoyed The Hunter's Wife or that you are looking to pick it up for a wintry, atmospheric read. And we would love to know what other wintry and seasonal books you're getting into. So leave a comment or send us a DM on Instagram. You can find us there at Novel Pairings Pod. And if you are loving the show, another great way to support us is to share Novel Pairings in your Instagram stories to let your friends know that you're listening. Or you can also just text them a link, that word of mouth spread of Novel Pairings podcast love is huge. So, but also, I mean, like, like you hear from every podcast, leaving a review (laughs) on Apple podcasts, it really matters. I have to say on the weeks where we get three or four new reviews, our podcast goes up in the charts. It really does make a difference. So head over to Apple podcasts, leave us a review. We really love it. And it helps other literary people find novel pairings. Thank you to Michelle Timmons for her assistance and to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next week, we'll be back to talk about 84 Charing Cross Road by Helene Hanf. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.